And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is William Derezowitz. I have a recent piece in Persuasion called How to Overall Higher Education. We're talking about affirmative action a lot now. This piece is distinguished by completely ignoring affirmative action because that only applies to a few schools and the vast majority of schools do not educate the elite. So what do we need to do for everybody else? We need to make college free again, just like we used to. We need to make it possible for people who aren't wealthy or near wealthy to go to college without taking on debt. We need to stop with the adjuncts. We need to go back to actual professors who have job security, but we also need to teach all professors actually how to teach, which, believe it or not, we don't do in higher education. That's going to cost some money. I propose that we pay for it not only with tax increases, which we need for lots of reasons anyway, but also by cutting all the ridiculous costs that have accumulated in higher education, like administrators. Cut half of the administrators, pay the ones who are left a lot less. Forget about intercollegiate athletics. They're complete non sequitur. No more amenities, no fancy dorms. Okay, students need to be treated not like customers, but rather like students. And I think if we do that, we might end up with a system that we can be proud of once again. So I invite you to read the whole piece. I say more. I think you'll find it interesting. William Derezowitz's piece, called How to Overhaul Higher Education, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is John Carey. John is a professor of government at Dartmouth, where he also serves as associate dean of faculty for the social sciences. John and I have been in conversation for a long time about the threats to democracy around the world and in the United States. In this conversation, we discuss some recent evidence which seems to suggest that objective measures for the state of democracy, like whether journalists are locked up or how long governments stay in office, don't seem to paint as worrying a picture as more subjective metrics like the Freedom House ranking made by experts. We also talk about the worrying finding from some of the surveys that John and colleagues have made of public opinion in the United States, including the fact that a very significant number of Americans, including most independents, think that the prosecutions of Donald Trump are politically motivated. If you want to think seriously about where we're at with the academic understanding and the public debate about populism and democracy, this is the conversation for you. John Kerry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. So, John, you and I have been in conversation for many years now, and we've both been very worried about the state of American democracy, the state of other democracies around the world. You know, it's nearly coming up to sort of a 10-year anniversary of my terming into a doomer and gloomer about democracy. At a time, it's difficult to recall now, when the idea that these democracies could come into any kind of danger was just treated as sort of 
far-fetched, absurd. So the conventional wisdom has really flipped 180 degrees, I think. But where are we at? I mean, you know, zooming out, how concerned should we be about the future of liberal democracy as we're recording this in 2023? Well, I remain concerned. You know, I think you were ahead of the game, Yasha, in the sense that you were on this theme a little bit ahead of, of a lot of academics who really kind of snapped to attention, I think, during the presidential campaign in 2016 and the election of Trump and inauguration in 2017. And I give you a little credit as well for being ahead of the game on anticipating a couple of good turns in this story, which were in particular elections in the United States in 2020 and in Brazil in 2022, in which populist candidates who were incumbents were turned out of office. And, you know, it's hard to beat incumbents. And so in some sense, the last couple of years have brought some very good news, but there's still a lot of stories. You know, the, the set of countries that are front and center in the discussion tends to shift a little bit over time. Ten years ago, people were talking less about India. They're talking more about India now. Ten years ago, people were talking, you know, more about probably Turkey and Venezuela and the Philippines. And, you know, now the conversation has shifted to places like Israel. And Hungary, of course, is always still front and center in the mix. So there are kind of a shifting set of cases that occupy most of our attention. But a lot of the same ingredients are still present, I think. And in many cases, it's, you know, sort of concentration of power in the executive branch. In some cases, it's executives overstaying their terms, sometimes against explicit constitutional term limits. We can look at the case of El Salvador right now, which I think is one we'll be paying more attention to in the next few years, where that's likely to happen. But a lot of the same ingredients are still present. And it's just sort of the landscape that we're looking at in any given time shifts. Yeah, so it feels to me that whether or not democracy is in danger or how worried we should be about it depends a little bit on the exact question we're asking. So when we're saying, you know, which significant big democracy in the world looks as stable as it did 10 years ago, the answer is just about none, right? So in the United States, you know, we have a very real prospect of somebody becoming a major party candidate while under indictment. Possibly, this is still a little far-fetched, but it's certainly within the realm of the imaginable, winning the presidency while sitting in prison. In Brazil, we continue to have a deeply polarized political system with a president who's struggling in many ways, and if not Jair Bolsonaro himself, and certainly members of his movement waiting to come back. In India, democracy is under serious attack from Narendra Modi. There's debate about whether it is the sort of liberal element of a democracy that is under very serious attack with significant deterioration of free speech and so on, which is beyond doubt, or whether there is at some point danger to free and fair elections as well. In Turkey, democracy for now is basically over. In, in Hungary, that's the case. And when you go to the big European countries, which look somewhat better, but where there's certainly concerns. I mean, in France, it does look like the next president may very well be Marine Le Pen. Germany, I think, oddly, is probably the big significant democracy that's doing the best in the world, perhaps along with Japan. But, you know, the AFD, the far-right populist party, is currently in second place in many polls. And this is a quite extreme far-right populist party, more extreme than, than many other European parties that are in a broadly similar space. So all of that looks very concerning. On the other hand, you might say, look, how bad is the impact of these people we worry about, right? Certainly when I started to write, I worried that one or two turns in government of these figures could be enough to undermine 
democracy to the extent that it has in Hungary, the extent that it has in Poland, which I omitted to mention, the extent that it has in Venezuela. And what we seem to be seeing is arguably a slightly more mixed result, where the states have certainly deteriorated, but we certainly continue to be a democracy, and Biden was able to win against Trump. Brazil lived through some very worrying months, including a bizarre imitation of a January 6th assault on Congress. But, you know, they did change power for free and fair elections. You know, India continues to have, for now, very vibrant elections, at least at the regional level, in which the opponents of Narendra Modi's BJP are able to score victories. So I guess, is the danger broader than we've recognized 10 years ago? And in that sense, the predictions were absolutely right, but perhaps sort of the effect of a treatment is very concerning, but not quite as stark as we might have worried about seven or eight years ago? Or are we at too early a stage of a process to recognize just how terrible the treatment is and the sort of actual collapse of these democratic institutions is going to happen down the road? Help me puzzle through this. I'll give you a classic academic answer, which is too soon to tell. But I'll seize on one of the terms you used, which is, is it one or two terms? And I think it might be two terms. And that, I think, is significant in the sense that, you know, neither Bolsonaro or Trump, two cases we mentioned before, got that second term. You know, we're seeing a lot of reporting now about the preparations that the Trump campaign is making for what a second term might look like. And a second bite at the apple might be even more damaging to our institutions than the first was. And you think about the case of Orban in Hungary, right? Really, it was his second term after a period out of office when he was really able to turn Hungarian democracy in a direction that was problematic. So I think there's some learning that goes on on the part of some of these politicians, and they can get more effective over time. And of course, also, if they are reelected, then you know that also is indicative of where the state of popular opinion is in, in these countries. So it may indicate a, a broader support for their particular agenda. There's been an interesting paper recently which makes the kind of skeptical case about how worried we should be. And I think both of us ultimately disagree with the paper, but we both find it to be an interesting and important intervention. So I want to spend a little moment talking about it. It's called a Subjective and Objective Measurement of Democratic Backsliding by Andrew Little and Anne Mang. John, would you talk us through the basic argument they're making of why, when you look away from the kind of, you know, subjective ways of measuring how democratic various countries are, where these indices are showing us all these warning signs and things are getting much worse, and you look towards objective measures, those look more concerning. What are those objective measures and why are they supposedly telling this reassuring story? Yeah, I really like this paper, even though, as you noted, there's some places where I disagree with it. But Little and Meng kind of pick up the story where we've been picking it up in the beginning of our conversation, saying, oh, in the last 10 years or so, academics and journalists and a lot of political actors have been talking about a democratic recession around the world. And note all the familiar cases, a lot of which we've already mentioned. But Little and Meng say, look, almost all this academic writing is based on expert assessments of democracy and the performance of democracy. And, you know, again, a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with organizations like Freedom House or Polity or most recently VDEM. This is the, you know, sort of a consortium of experts who rate democracies around the world every year. So you can estimate over time whether or not the performance of democracy worldwide is improving or holding steady or going downhill. At any rate, most of that 
democratic recessions literature is based on these expert assessments. And Little and Ming come along and say, well, look, if there really is a recession, we should be able to observe it in other indicators as well. It may be some that don't depend on the what they would call subjective assessment of experts. And so they look at things like, what's the rate at which incumbent governing parties lose elections and get turned out of office? You know, are elections getting less competitive? Is the margin of victory between the winner and the second place party getting wider or narrower? And uh, one of them that I already mentioned, are chief executives evading term limits and perpetuating themselves in office beyond their constitutional terms at a greater rate than in the past. And they also look at things like um, how many journalists are getting jailed or murdered every year. So there's a lot of these things that are less subjective and uh, pretty well documented. And they look around at them and they don't find any evidence that in the last decade or so, things have gotten worse by those other indicators. And so, you know, it's a pretty compelling case. So I read the paper, and as you're saying, you know, they look at all these different kind of objective measures. They do a lot of interesting sleuthing work, putting together that data and so on. And it's quite compelling, right? I mean, I think that certainly it should update our model a little bit. I think if you read that paper carefully and think that doesn't change my view at all, you know, you're slightly too ideologically committed to a particular view of the world, and you should probably take the argument seriously. The question is, how much should it update our model? To what extent should that reassure us? So one obvious line of argument is that somehow these objective measures are missing something about the actual operation of these democracies that is important. Perhaps there's not more journalists getting jailed, but it's not necessary because all of the state media has been turned to propaganda machines and a lot of the private media has changed hands. And so, you know, these opposition journalists are able to post blog posts or find a different job in PR or something, but they're not employed criticizing the government anymore, right? Perhaps we are at an early stage of the process of democratic composition so that people are putting the ducks in the row in such a way that they can later evade term limits and all that stuff, sort of stuff will come down the turnpike, but we're not quite there. I think there's something to those counter-arguments, but perhaps we don't entirely discredit the argument. So where would you sort of try to push back against this paper and where do we think our overall assessment should shake out? Yeah, well, I'm part of a research group called Brightline Watch. Now, we've only been active since 2017, but, you know, it's seven years now, I guess. We've been surveying academic experts, so very much like the VDEM or Freedom House experts that Little and Meng are concerned with, they think might be biased towards pessimism. We've been surveying even broader samples of academic experts, and we've also been surveying samples of the American general public. And so our approach was to say, well, we can't exactly test Little and Meng's hypothesis that starting 10 years ago or so, the experts got more pessimistic because we weren't in business more than 10 years ago to establish a basic comparison. But, you know, there are some things that if their proposition's right, we should be able to observe in our own data. Their idea is like, we're all, all of us experts, I guess, are stewing in this marinade of pessimism or doomerism. So we're all kind of echoing our own pessimism and accentuating it. And so we thought, well, if that's the case, then among our set of experts that we, that Brightline Watch samples, maybe the ones who take a lot of our surveys are different from the ones who don't take many of them or take just a handful. Or maybe, you know, the ones among our experts who are really deeply marinated in social media, what we 
would call, you know, democracy Twitter. Maybe they're more pessimistic than the ones who aren't. Or actually, we could survey our experts and ask, have you ever been asked to code for VDEM? And maybe it's the case that VDEM is selecting a bunch of pessimists relative to the. And the answer in all these cases is, no, we can't find any evidence for this. And we also can compare our experts with the general public, and we find out, are they more pessimistic about democracy than the general public? The answer is, no, they're actually more optimistic. They rate the U.S. better on democratic performance, for example, than the public does. And they're also not getting relatively more pessimistic compared to the public in the seven years for which we have data. So we looked a whole bunch of different ways, and none of them is a direct test of Little and Meng. But you would think that we'd find kind of corroborating evidence somewhere if that proposition is right, and we can't find it. So it brings me back, I think, to where you were going, which is another possibility is Little Meng are right by the objective measures that they've looked at. Those things are not moving much, but that the ways that democratic eroders are operating is maybe getting more subtle over time. You mentioned not throwing the journalists in jail, but changing the ownership structure of media. That's a great example. Another would be chipping away at the power of the courts. And I think we are watching that going on this week in Israel. That's not going to show up by their broad objective measures. You know, it's a good thing that we don't see the tanks rolling down the street. We don't see a lot of military coups anymore. I think we could all count that as progress. But it may be the case that the attacks on what we would think of as liberal democracy are more subtle, but they're still happening. Yeah, so I love a great academic puzzle. What's lovely about your response to this paper is that it sort of pulls the same move that they pull on the democracy literature, right? To summarize the moves as I see them, it's sort of, you know, look, there's all of these indications that we should worry about the state of democracy. I mean, people assaulted the capital. First time the capital was breached in whatever it is, 150 years. I mean, that seems like a pretty straightforward indication of worry about democracy. You know, people like Trump are president. He might be running from jail. I mean, you know, it's not like just people have imagined this crisis of democracy. But, you know, pretty obvious indications of reasons to be concerned from the headlines. And by the way, even if you are sympathetic to Trump, even if you think that actually Trump is right, you should also be worried about democracy because, as his people are saying, you know, supposedly the election was stolen and the wrong president is in power. So actually democracy is already broken down. So one of the points I've been making, the only thing that Americans have consensus about right now is that there's a danger to democracy. There's disagree about where that danger is located. So, you know, however you look at it, there seems to be this danger. And that's sort of where a lot of this concern in literature and so on comes from. Now, little men come in and say, let's look at these objective measures of what's going on that should actually correlate with all of these headlines and all of these concerns. And it's very striking but on a lot of them, they don't. And they're good researchers. They're not fiddling with the numbers. And they've looked at it, lots of different interesting indicators. So that's kind of interesting. Now, you're coming and say, all right, so their kind of hypothesis is they don't prove that, but it's what they suggest. And it's kind of a natural assumption. There's just something weird about the people making the assessments, right? Perhaps we're all sitting on Twitter, driving ourselves crazy into concern. We're all sort of chasing media cloud by making the most negative possible predictions. And that's sort of what's driving our views. But you're showing in these interesting, subtle ways, in a way by sort of trying to test this and by looking at some objective metrics, but are indirect, but very suggestive, similar to what they're doing. Well, you know, is it true that they're more negative than the general public? Is it true that those of them who are on Twitter are more negative than those of them who are not? Is it true that any of these kind of sources of bias are And the answer seems to be no again. So we have a sort of double puzzle, right? Like we have the original puzzle and then the puzzle as to why the explanation for the original puzzle doesn't work. So perhaps one way of making sense of this, I'm going to sort of float a hypothesis, is that what we've been wrong about is the impact of the democratic crisis, that 
we've been thinking about this all along in terms of democracy or dictatorship, right? Like one or zero. And obviously a lot of these measurements are actually more subtle than that. They're out of 100 or something like that, plus 10, minus 10, different scales. But it's not like they're all sort of ones and zeros. But our basic framework intellectually, I think, has been, you know, Germany, France, and the United States are democracies now. And the concern is that when people like Trump and Le Pen win, they may one day be dictatorships, right? And perhaps that is just overly simplistic a way of thinking about it. And what's really happening is that we are going from a set of reasonably liberal democracies with broad protections for opposition activity and free speech, in which the playing field is relatively even, to you know, dirty democracies, where a lot of what's going on is you know, competition over the rules of a game, and where when you're in power, you're able to dominate certain media outlets, you are able to fiddle with the rules to give you an advantage, you're able to undermine both the chance of your position and just the functioning, the fairness of a system, how effective it is and how it treats people who disagree in very significant ways. But for various reasons, so far, there hasn't been a lot of people who completely win this game. So the opposition always retains sort of power centers that give it a chance to come back. And then when they come back, in, at least in some countries, perhaps they're going to do the same. So perhaps we just shifted into this democracy characterized by much more hardcore competition in which people are in this sort of more extreme way battling over the rules over time. And that is plenty of reason to be concerned about, by the way. When you look at how democracy is working in some countries where that's long been true, perhaps you could say Thailand or Pakistan or some of those places, that has really bad impacts on people's lives, really bad impacts on the ability of people to actually exercise control over the government and all kinds of other things. But it isn't quite as stark as the moment in the 60s and 70s when a lot of countries gained their independence from colonial powers for the first time and looked like you were going to have democracy for four years and then you have Mugabe just being a dictator for 50 years, right? It's, it's not that kind of model. And I don't know, I mean, I'm really thinking out loud, John. I mean, does that help to explain a little bit of this weird sort of divergence between the subjective and the objective measures? Or do you think we need to solve the puzzle in some other way? I think that's right. The dramatic collapses that we saw in a lot of the 20th century are really rare now, you know? Military coups are one, you know, declarations of dictatorships or president for life kind of thing that's gone out of style or, you know, it's just less frequent. And I think the problem that people are wrestling with is, if you're right, what you described, I think the second part of that is that did we peak at some point such that the net changes on the margins are going to be negative at least as often as positive from year to year now? Because it was also a sense, I think, in the 90s and maybe even in the first decade of the aughts that... There had been a big wave of dramatic transitions in the 80s and 90s, but that the democracies we had weren't perfect. They were going to keep getting better. You know, the tinkering around the edges was going to be, by and large, in the direction of improvement. And that, I think, is very much open to question right now. And that's where the debates are. And once you get into, you know, the measurement of these small changes or small shifts, if we're thinking worldwide, you know, which way are we going, net positive or net negative, the debates are going to get more in the weeds about how we measure and about, you know, how many countries are moving in which direction. You know, even things like when you're trying to figure out a way in a democratic recession, do you weight countries by their population, right? A shift in India in a negative direction is consequential to a lot more people than a shift in Hungary or El Salvador. So should we take account of that? And that's where a lot of the academic debate is. You know, that's okay. That's where we need to be looking right now because that's where the action is. So you mentioned this, this great research project that you've had for the last seven or so years called Brightline Watch. 
Zooming out across these seven years, surveying experts and surveying the general public about these important questions relating to how they think about democracy and how optimistic or pessimistic they are about democracy. What are the main takeaways? I mean, what have we learned from asking them these questions and how has the view of experts and the view of the general public changed over the years that you've been looking at it? So Brightline Watch, and thanks for asking, and I'll mention my colleagues in this, Brendan Nyhan is my colleague at Dartmouth, and Gretchen Helmke at the University of Rochester, and Sue Stokes at the University of Chicago, and Olivier Bergeron-Boutin, who brings a uh, critical Quebecois perspective as our research associate this year, doing great work. This group focuses primarily on American democracy. We do mostly survey research, and we occasionally ask questions about other countries, but the overwhelming focus is on the United States. And, you know, we formed basically to try to figure out in 2017, there was a lot of sky is falling kind of rhetoric about American democracy. And we wanted to figure out, is there something to this? Should we be that concerned? Uh, and we're concerned, but I think, you know, the sky didn't fall, at least uh, to the degree that a lot of people thought it might in 2017. So we've been trying to figure out ever since, is the situation getting more dire or less? And a lot of what we've found is stuff that will be entirely familiar to your audience and to you, of course, which is just that, you know, the level of partisan polarization in this country is profound. And you can sometimes find shifts around the edges where it's declining a little bit from maybe a high watermark during the Trump presidency. But by and large, those are marginal shifts. And it's still really deep and really problematic. And as we look forward, I think the big concerns are Number one, about acceptance of election results, right? So we all have real clear experience with what it looks like when one side doesn't accept their loss. And then the kind of new big ingredient that's been injected in the past year or so is around legal accountability, specifically indictments of former President Trump, which have come from a couple of different directions so far. And it looks like we'll probably have another set of federal indictments handed down soon, I think most people expect based on this letter that Trump received last week. And the, the polarization is deep there as well, but we've been trying to probe to try to figure out what are the things that can mitigate that. One of the comments you made earlier suggested a theme that people talk about a lot, that people live in kind of different factual realities, right? And so we're always trying to look for what are the facts you can present to people or what are the events that might happen in the real world that have that rare property of people on both sides of this divide responding in a common manner to them. And they're pretty rare. That's the challenging thing. But we keep looking. One of the very interesting findings in the latest wave of a survey is about how Americans are thinking about the indictments of Donald Trump and its likely impact. So one headline finding, as I understand it, is that actually a lot of people view these indictments as politically motivated. And this is true not just among people who say that they're Republicans, so where we can assume that they have voted for the Republican Party under Trump for a number of years and are broadly on board with the program, but also among a majority of independents who are going to play a big role in the outcome of a 2024 election. So that's very interesting, and I'd love you to talk me through that. But then the other sort of element of this that's really interesting is that you point out that experts in your survey don't worry very much about the cycle of retribution. So they don't worry that, you know, once Republicans are in power, they're then going to start indicting Joe Biden. And we just set this new norm where each new administration is going to indict the last administration, whether or not they have some good grounds in doing that, as I believe at the moment, 
there's good grounds to indict Donald Trump, or they don't have good grounds in doing that. But then when you look at sort of Republican respondents, their willingness to go after the Biden administration is extremely high. And so there seems to be some evidence that the base of the Republican Party is going to be completely on board with that cycle of retribution. And so that perhaps that cycle of retribution is more likely than we're thinking. Putting these different points of data, which you've kindly highlighted for me, what does that tell us about how these prosecutions of Donald Trump are likely to play out and how we should think about them? So I'll give you the pessimistic interpretation first, and then I'll circle back around and look for some seeds of optimism in there. Yeah, the pessimistic interpretation is, I think, just what you were starting to articulate, which is that, first of all, thinking about independence. So this is a relatively small chunk of our public sample, around 15%. But for obvious reasons, given the role they play in swinging elections, they're particularly of interest to us. And right now, independents, solid majorities of them, regard the criminal charges that have been brought so far against Trump. And also, you know, we asked about allegations on which he hasn't been charged, like the January 6th events or trying to change votes in Georgia. And independents regard all these as politically motivated, good majorities of them. So that suggests that the prosecutors anyways have still got a lot of work to do. And Republicans, overwhelmingly, about two out of three, are willing to embrace. So we, we put this question on the survey in a way that was, I think, kind of intentionally or consciously politically inflammatory, partly because I didn't expect that many people would embrace it. And, you know, the way we asked is that, do you agree or disagree the next Republican president should prosecute Biden and other Democrats in response to the current indictments? So, you know, it was an explicit kind of retributionist framework. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, do you think that Hunter Biden, yada, yada, or for whatever reason you have in your mind, that there might be some reasons to indict Joe Biden, which in the current political climate would be unsurprising if there's sort of more people saying yes to that. But the specific question you're asking is really, you know, do you think because they went after ours, we should go after theirs? And there the answer was yes to such an extent. We had initially intended to have that question. And then, you know, there are various approaches you can use on surveys to try to elicit sincere answers from people on questions they might be reluctant to answer on. And we were planning to include another kind of experiment that would be, you know, sort of a give people cover in a sense. They could answer yes without having it be explicitly retributionist like that. And, you know, the plan was we'll compare the responses and see how many people are reluctant to embrace that approach. Well, surveys are expensive and we ended up having to throw that second experiment overboard and not do it. But we had the original question on the survey and two out of three Republicans embraced the explicit retributionist formulation, which is higher than I ever expected. But it's also telling, I think. So that part of the electorate, I think, is ready to go with the cycle of prosecutions. And, you know, so I'm someone before I started really studying U.S. politics really closely. I spent most of my career studying Latin American politics. And, you know, in Latin America, this is a really familiar formula. You've got countries where every living former president is under indictment at any given time. And uh, it's a really hard formula to find your way out of once you go down that path. And so I'm particularly concerned about it. And I think the ingredients are kind of there on the ground in terms of public opinion for that to happen in the U.S. case. So, frankly, I think our expert sample seems to be less concerned about this than I am overall. I, I generally regard the, you know, the judgment of the experts as pretty solid and pretty informative, but in this case, they don't seem much concerned with that. One indication of that to me is that they're just about as supportive of the indictment that came out of New York about financial improprieties to 
cover up hush money payments to Stormy Daniels in the 2016 election. They support that indictment at about the same level or close to the same level as the indictments handed down by Jack Smith in June about Trump's handling of classified documents. And I, you know, to my eye, I'm not an attorney, but I look at those cases, they look very different to me. You know, I look at the evidence that Smith handed down with the indictments. It seems really straightforward. It's easy to follow the logic, follow the case. And the New York case, less so, at least to my eye. But the experts as a whole, they like the indictments. That's astonishing to me. I have a few thoughts here. So one thought is just the obvious about the cycle of retribution. You know, that is bad because you end up with decent people who haven't, in fact, done anything wrong under indictment in, in prison and so on. But more importantly, or as importantly, it's terrible because you obviously create an incredibly strong incentive to stay in office. If you know that the moment you're out of power, you're going to be prosecuted and possibly put in jail and lose you know, a lot of your possessions and so on and so forth, well, you're going to do whatever you can to stay out of jail. And so once this kind of cycle of retribution gets going, it's a very bad sign for the future stability of democracy. And that's one of the reasons why we should be so concerned about that. The second point I wanted to make is that, you know, I do wonder whether there's a sort of structural problem here with the nature of the American justice system. Now, I think it's always going to be somewhat difficult to completely insulate the process of prosecution from political pressure. And many countries struggle with how to do that institutionally. And ultimately, all of these institutions are animated by people. And what counts is the norms that people internalize, not just the institutional structure. But there does seem to be something just particularly noxious about the way in which prosecutions are structured in the United States. So, you know, when I look at something like the New York case, I agree with you strongly that the New York case was very weak. And I think it was very damaging that that was the first of the indictments against Trump. I think if we'd started with a documents case, which perhaps is morally a little less important, but where there's just smoking gun evidence from what we've seen so far, and then something like the Georgia case, where perhaps the evidence is more complicated, but goes to the heart of his assault on democracy and the attempt to overturn the election. So, you know, if we'd started with that, I think the framing of it in public may have been different. You know, the New York case is about something that's ultimately a kind of smutty affair that is being prosecuted under very complicated legal theory as to why there's a state crime involved in intending to commit a federal crime. It's very complicated and intricate, and it's quite novel, right? People have been prosecuted for improper handling of documents many, many times. They've never been, so far as I know, prosecuted on this particular kind of theory that Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, is pursuing. But let's step back from that for a second, right? Let's imagine that the case in Manhattan had been open and shut, right? Trump had done something that any reasonable observer would see as a crime and that seems to be morally very significant. Even then, one of the core principles that justice doesn't just have to be done, it has to be seen to be done. And it would be very hard for that to be the case for half of a country when, you know, you're going after a former president in the most liberal jurisdiction in the country. I mean, one of the districts which has voted most heavily for the opponent. The person who's going after him promised before they were in office and had access to all the relevant facts that they're going to go after that person, right? And then the moment they're in office, they sort of start putting these charges. I mean, there's a structural problem here, right? Because let's say that Trump had committed a very clear-cut crime in Manhattan and the DA had gone after him. Even then, there would be this appearance of impropriety because of the structural way in which a lot of these issues of justice 
are handled. And I think that's something in this conversation that we haven't quite thought through. We're not going to be able to fix it, and perhaps that's why we're not talking about it, but it's a troubling aspect of how the system works for me. Yeah, I agree. It's a manifestation of we've got a big, complex system of government with a lot of different layers in it. It's, you know, sort of an element of our federalist system. And part of what comes with that is you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, right? We've got a lot of different court systems and a lot of different prosecutorial systems in the country. You know, by and large, I think I share what I hear as a skepticism about, for example, electing prosecutors and electing judges directly. Like that, that brings with it inevitably, you know, motivations for people to run on platforms before they necessarily have all the evidence. But on the whole, I'm glad that we've got a number of different judicial systems active at the same time, because it just makes it a little bit more difficult to capture all the referees for any one side. That's very interesting. I agree that actually one of the underplayed sources of democratic resilience in the United States is the fragmentation of power. Well, even, you know, when Donald Trump was trying to overturn the outcome of the election in 2020, as he very clearly was, if there had been, as some of my colleagues called for, I think, naively and absurdly, a national election commission that makes all of the decisions, well, if Trump had managed to put a majority of his people on that commission, he would still be president. But as it stands, it is a very decentralized system which comes with a lot of unprofessionalism in certain parts, with a lot of problems with hanging chads in Florida. I mean, you know, in part, the fact that it's so decentralized opens the path to all kinds of mistakes and problems. But it makes it much, 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 much harder to capture power at the central, at the federal level. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to remove Trump from office in free and fair elections, despite the lies and the violence that followed. Now, I do wonder whether when it comes to the circle of retribution you were talking about, the federal system is going to be a problem. Because there, it's not just that, you know, if Donald Trump were to win the next election, he would have the support from his base for going after Biden as a form of retribution, and might very well do, given everything we know about his past actions and, and his character. But even, you know, some district attorney in Texas or in Mississippi that wants to rise to a national profile and win the next primary elections for governor or senator might have a reason to try and indict a past president and might very well be able to get a grand jury in um, you know a very strongly Republican-leaning jurisdiction to go for it. Now, that might be overturned later by the Supreme Court or others. There's obviously no jurisdiction and there's obviously sort of political grandstanding and so on. But that feels to me like it's going to potentially make the cycle of retribution worse. That's the other part of having a big, complicated, sort of sprawling system like this, is there are going to be actors who try every every strategy, right? So the one you just described, it'll get tried, and we'll see how much traction it gets. And we're learning more, actually, right now, as we look at the current classified documents case play out. Like, what does it mean to have a judge appointed by the defendant as a presiding judge in these cases? And as usual, you know, the evidence is mixed, right? You know, you, you see reasons for concern, but then every once in a while you see reasons for a sigh of relief about this complicated decentralized system we've got. So for the end of a conversation, I'd like to change topics a little bit and ask about a concept in political science that's become very influential in the last decades and how we should think about it. So when political scientists studied racism in the past, you know, they started off by just studying it relatively directly, by asking people, you know, whether they have racist attitudes. And it's hard to remember now, I was just 
talking about this with some students recently, the extent to which there was just open, proud, and devout racism in a large segment of a population, you know, in the relatively recent past. People who were very openly willing to say, you know, I think there's something superior about the white race, or I think a white person and a non-white person should not be marrying each other, and so on. That was terrible as a social reality, but it made it easy for political scientists to study these phenomena, because if you wanted to understand who's more racist, under what circumstances, how racial attitudes change over time, etc. You asked these very straightforward questions and looked at the answers, right? Now, in part because of, I think, the significant social progress we've made on this question, that sort of research design no longer works so well. Because, A, some of the most explicitly racist beliefs have just become much less common in the population. But, B, there's a kind of social desirability bias at least to some extent, perhaps to a very large extent, that's one of the questions that's at issue, in which people would no longer say yes to these very straightforward questions, even if they might secretly believe them. And so political scientists have started using something called the racial resentment scale, which is trying to elicit whether people have forms of racial resentment. It's called racial resentment as a sort of coy term, but really political scientists, I think, by and large, mean racism by it, by asking more indirect questions about their attitudes, which are supposed to sort of elicit that. And then when you look at that, racial resentment is quite strong and correlates with all kinds of other things. So Republicans have much higher racial resentment, which is to say racism, than Democrats, according to the racial resentment scale, for example. Now, there's also been some concerns about what the racial resentment scale is actually doing and whether it's accurately measuring what's going on. So, John, can you tell us a little bit about what the racial resentment scale is and some of your research, as well as research by others in political science, that in your mind is complicating sort of how useful a metric that actually is and whether perhaps it's misleading us in some important ways? Yeah, sure. So what it is, is it's generally four questions that you know, survey researchers will ask people. And they're questions that are, as you mentioned, kind of meant to allow people to say yes or to agree or disagree with them in a way that would indicate lack of sympathy or even hostility toward blacks. And actually, it's important to note, the racial resentment scale was, um, you know, sort of constructed initially, I think, in the 1980s, and it explicitly makes reference to blacks. So it'll ask questions like, over the past few years, blacks have gotten less than they deserve. How much do you agree or disagree with that? Or it's really just a matter of some people not trying hard enough. If blacks would only try harder, they could be just as well off as whites. So it makes explicit reference to blacks, not to Hispanics, Latinos, Native Americans, Asians. But over the years, it has become more of a kind of a generic racism scale, or it's been used that way. It's been interpreted that way by researchers. So part of the question that we were interested in is, whatever it is the racial resentment scale is measuring, does it apply in the same way across different underrepresented minority groups, Blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, Asians? That index or the scale has been used to predict a lot of other political attitudes. So you can measure someone on the racial resentment scale, and then that's going to predict their attitudes toward candidates, according to minority versus white candidates. And it's also really effective at predicting their support for different policies, even ones that don't necessarily have direct racial components. But you can generally show when someone's higher on the racial resentment index, they're going to be less supportive of minority candidates, they're going to be less supportive of liberal public policies and so forth. But one thing we don't necessarily know is, does that mean that people on the high end of the scale are 
racist? Or does it mean that people on the low end of the scale are super progressive and maybe even favoring of policies that would help underrepresented minorities? And, you know, obviously both those things could be true, but it's pretty hard to get leverage on how much of either of those phenomena is going on in most public opinion surveys. So let me give you an example. This is done during Obama's presidency. So there was a stimulus package, an economic stimulus package, and it asked people how much they supported it. But if you ask people and you said, this is an Obama stimulus package, which it was, and then ask them how much they supported it. And you ask the question in a different way. And you said, this is a stimulus package supported by congressional Democrats, which was also true. And you ask them how much they supported it. You could show that um, people high on the racial resentment index were much less likely to support it when it was packaged as an Obama plan and more likely to support it when it was a congressional Democrats plan. And people on the other end of the racial resentment index responded the opposite way. So that tells you, I think, with some certainty that, okay, the racial resentment index is telling us something about the way people respond to public policy. But we don't know how much should people actually support this stimulus package. We didn't have a good baseline. So one of the things that we've done recently in our research, and this is with a different set of collaborators, and I should just mention them, Yusaku Horiuchi, who's a colleague of mine at Dartmouth, and Tim Ryan at North Carolina, and Alex Agajanian at Berkeley. We ran a bunch of experiments to try to figure out, is the racial resentment index, is it a measure of racism and hostility toward minorities? Or is it, you can think of it as a measure of racial progressivism and support for remedial policies. Long and short, we used a set of experiments that had a natural midpoint in which if race was completely irrelevant to the way you were operating, the way you're making choices, you would come down 50-50 on any given candidate. And what we found then is most of what's going on with the racial resentment index was on the low end of the scale. In other words, it was finding people who were really low on that index favoring minority candidates relative to white candidates. And much less was going on at the high end of the scale. People at the high end of the scale were pretty much neutral between white candidates and minority candidates. And that was surprising to us. We really didn't expect to find it. I should note that's entirely true for if you pair a black candidate against a white candidate. If you pair an Hispanic candidate against a white candidate, it's mostly true. In other words, most of the preference is going on at the low end of the scale relative to the high end of the scale. But there is some dispreference for Hispanic candidates relative to white candidates at the high end of the scale. But what was really striking to me was that for Asian candidates against white candidates, that's where the racial resentment index operated the way people have generally thought the way it does operate, which was at the high end of the scale, people were disfavoring Asian candidates relative to white candidates. And there was no favoritism toward Asian candidates at the low end of the scale. That was really striking to me. Oh, that is fascinating. I wouldn't have expected that exactly, but it's an interesting finding of, you know, I think it's in line with ways in which Asian Americans are sort of in some contexts treated as minorities, but are discriminated against and in certain contexts aren't thought of as fully American and so on. And then in other contexts don't actually get the forms of favorable treatment that some other minority groups get, particularly in the context of college admissions. So as I'm understanding it, you're finding that there is this effect from the racial resentment scale that can predict a bunch of things. But the thing that's driving it, at least in some of the contexts that you've looked at, is not people who have high racial resentment, i.e. racists, saying, I'm not going to vote for a black candidate, I'm going to treat minority candidates worse. A lot of it is actually people who are very, very low in racial resentment saying, I'm going to favor this candidate because they're black, or I'm going to 
you know, favor this policy because it's framed in a certain kind of way. That's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that concerns me about the scale is that some of the questions it asks are relatively close to Republican Party policy, right? So one of the questions is something like, you know, Italians and Irish immigrants managed to succeed in the United States without any special treatment, you know, African-Americans should be able to do the same or something like that. And whatever you think about the truth or untruth of that statement, it just is very close to a partisan divide between Democrats and Republicans. And so one of the things that seems obviously illegitimate to me then is to turn around and say, look, Republicans say this more than Democrats. Therefore, they have racial resentment. Therefore, by the time it becomes, uh, you know, a headline in, in the New York Times or the Washington Post, it's Republicans are more racist than Democrats. That just seems like it's playing verbal games that are just actually sort of polarizing the country and catastrophizing about our fellow citizens in a way that is problematic. It may very well be true that people who vote for Donald Trump, for example, have more racist attitudes than others. But to show that, I think we have to have a metric that is more fair than asking them about a bunch of Republican policies and then concluding if they say yes to Republican policies we're going to play some verbal games that result in them being called racists. Yeah, so you've tapped into one of the really longstanding debates in the academic literature about the racial resentment index, which is it, I guess one way to think of it, is this about racism or is it just about ideology? And if you embrace a kind of a more economic libertarian kind of pull yourself up by bootstraps kind of ideology, you may end up answering in ways that would cause uh, you know the scholars to categorize you as racist. And so we tried actually to get some leverage on exactly that debate. And I'll give you another element of this study that we did, which is basically the task that our participants were engaged in is choosing between job candidates. And so one of the jobs that they were vying for was city manager. And we described what a city manager does. And a city manager makes explicitly political decisions. They allocate resources across, you know, parks and schools and street repair and so forth. And so you might think these are inherently political kind of decisions. But we also had a separate set of experiments exactly the same, except for the job candidates were applying for the position of a cell biologist at a state university. These are roughly equivalent in terms of status and educational background, right? They're kind of elite level jobs, but one of them is allocating politically scarce resources and the other one is definitely not. It's in the lab making apolitical decisions. And the idea was, look, if the racial resentment index is really just a proxy for ideology, then that index will give us a lot of leverage on people's choices about city managers, but it won't do anything for you know, their decisions about cell biologists. In fact, what we found is there was effectively no difference between the predictiveness of the racial resentment scale and those two paired experiments. So that suggests to me that it's not really ideology that's driving answers to the racial resentment questions, that they really are tapping into something about race. It's just what they're tapping into might be slightly different from what most of the academic literature up till now has thought. The other thing that's possible, and I think really quite likely, is that the meaning of the index has changed over time. I think it's totally reasonable to think that 30, 40 years ago, when people were first starting to use this tool, it meant something pretty different from what it means today. What I described earlier, which is there's a lot of action at the low end of the scale, which looks like it's favoring minority job applicants. That I would guess that's a, a new phenomenon. I can't go back 30 years and run the same experiments, but I'd be surprised if you found that 30 years ago. 
Yeah. And so in a way, all of this is good news, right? I mean, I think one of the strange things about the debate is that we always feel like if you find good news about the state of the world, if you want to say that some things have improved, that some is minimizing problems, there's clearly ongoing injustices and problems in the United States. But the fact that actually what we thought was this indication of really strong prejudice is not there. It's something that we should take a lot of heart in. So there's one last question. There's one paper by Riley Carney and Ryan Enos at Harvard, who have also run a test on the racial resentment scale. And the way they did it, I thought was really sort of straightforward and clever and easy to explain, which is they said, well, look, if the idea is that the racial resentment scale is measuring this longstanding prejudice against African-Americans, and, you know, we have good reason to think that in a country like the United States, there might be this longstanding prejudice against African-Americans because of the history of slavery and Jim Crow and all of the discrimination they've suffered and the lower socioeconomic status that some African-Americans have as a result and so on, right? Well, then people should give very different answers when we ask them the same questions about a group that, you know, there's no particular reason to think Americans would be prejudiced towards. And so they went in and one of the responses they did is they asked all the same questions about Lithuanians, right? And so the expectation would be, you know, if there's really strong anti-Black racism in the United States that the scale captures, it shouldn't capture the same anti-Lithuanian sentiment because there's no particular reason given American history why we would expect lots of really strongly anti-Lithuanian sentiment. But actually, lo and behold, as I recall, roughly speaking, people gave very similar answers. It didn't turn out that there was less racial resentment against Lithuanians. But actually, according to the standard scale, Americans have as much racial resentment against Lithuanians as against African-Americans. To me, that seems very hard to answer for, for the defenders of a racial resentment scale. I find it hard to grapple with how you can think that the scale should continue to be used after that test. But how do you think about that paper? How definitive a refutation of a racial resentment scale do you think it provides? Yeah, it's a good one. I don't have a great answer for it. It's a real indicator of the ability to push people's responses around just by the way you structure a survey question. And there's a lot of evidence for that over time. But that's one example that is particularly striking. At the same time, if it were the case that responses on this scale are effectively arbitrary or you know could be pushed in any direction so that they're without content, then the scale shouldn't then be a good predictor of other attitudes. And we find that it really consistently is a pretty strong predictor of attitudes on a whole long basket of you know policy attitudes and political opinions. So I'm not giving you a very satisfactory answer or a satisfying answer, but I think that paper is one that we got to be paying careful attention to. And it's all, you know, just more indication of why when we're doing this survey research, we just have to be really cautious and, you know, conservative in interpreting our results and try to validate them a number of different ways. Very briefly, at the end of this conversation, what is something that you've learned from your survey research about democracy, going back to Brightline's Watch and so on, that you think we should bear in mind? I mean, if there's one kind of lesson from all of the data you've collected in the last seven years about how those of us who care about the future of American democracy should act or what we should think or what we should change our mind about, what might it be? One of the things I promised to circle back around to that I hadn't yet was to look for some seeds of optimism and... Um, in particular, by optimism, I mean evidence that people respond to information that we think of as factual information. And so we've talked about some reasons for despair in the podcast so far, but we should look for evidence in the, in the other direction. And there is some. We asked people in this most recent survey, not just about these four general cases or sets of allegations against Trump, for instance, you know, the hush money, 
the Georgia election, the classified documents one, and the January 6th investigation. But because we actually had these detailed recent indictments on the classified documents case, we actually drilled down deeper in that one and asked people a bunch of questions. And um, we were able to compare answers from a poll done six months ago where that case was in the news cycle, but we didn't have the details of the indictments in front of us. And what we saw is that when we asked people the specific questions about, you know, did he take the documents? Did he store them in a place where he, you know, they shouldn't have been stored? Did he show them to people who didn't have security clearance? And did he actually try to get his lawyers to obstruct the investigation of the case? And so when you basically confront people with things that they've seen evidence about recently, on those specific questions, they move a little bit. So, you know, even respondents, even, you know, kind of Republican respondents who basically said, no, this is all political and no, I don't think a crime was committed. And you ask them about the specifics and they start to move a little bit. And we see that movement both over time and when we compare the general question to the specific question. So that to me is encouraging. And uh, if people want to read the report, the report is just out, they should go look at it online. And, And there are in different parts of it, you know, pieces of evidence that people respond to information, they update so that's encouraging. Connected to that broader theme, you asked about what have I generally learned? People hold a lot of misperceptions. We learn that when we do survey research. I think, for example, the broad package of beliefs that we describe as the big lie, I think they're pretty much all misperceptions. They've been documented to be not the case. And yet a lot of people still hold them. We could go on and on and we could list other areas where people hold these misperceptions, whether they're in public health areas or climate science and so forth. And we know it's hard to change misperceptions, but it's possible. A big part of our research is what are the strategies that we can use in order to change people's mind when the facts are really all lined up in a particular direction. And it is hard. And, you know, sometimes it involves just presenting people with the facts. Sometimes it involves combining that with having those facts be delivered by what your audience would consider credible sources. And there's all kinds of research into the various ways of delivering that message. It's a long game. The progress you make can often kind of erode if you don't follow up on it and keep drilling the message in. But you can make progress. So that's the bottom line, I think. And we have to keep looking for ways to do it because otherwise we're never going to close this huge divide that we have. It's mainly along partisan lines, but there are other divides as well where people are just operating in separate factual universes. We've got to work on trying to close that. We can do it, but it's going to be a long road. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Asha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.